Chapter 7 of A Woman of Yesterday. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tammy Mono. A Woman of Yesterday by Caroline Atwater Mason. Chapter 7. She, Dorothea, could not reconcile the anxieties of a spiritual life involving eternal consequences with a keen interest in gimp and artificial protrusions of drapery. Middlemarch, George Eliot. A small house in a small street of a small provincial city. A faded brown house with its front door directly on the street, the steps jutting into the sidewalk. A narrow strip of yard overlaid with grimy snow separated this house from others on either side, equally unnotable and uninteresting, the dwellings of mechanics and small tradesmen. It was the close of a rough March day. The wind had not died with sunsetting, and a thin, piercing rain, colder than snow, was driven before it into the very teeth of the few passers-by. A tall woman in a straight black dress with a dyed black shawl drawn tightly around her shoulders was making her way down the street dead against the wind, which beat her hair out into wet strands and bound her skirts hard about the slender long limbs. She made no useless attempt to hold an umbrella. In fact, she carried none, but was heavily burdened with four or five large books. She was girlish in figure after a severe sort, her step steady, her movement without impatience or fluttering, in spite of the struggle with the wind. Seeing her face, the absorbedness of sorrow in it was profound enough to explain indifference to sharper buffetings than those of the wind. It was Anna Mallison. When she reached the house, she deposited her books on the icy step and drew from her pocket with stiffened, aching fingers a key with which she unlocked the door. The house was unlighted, and its close, airless presence apparently empty. Stooping, Anna gathered her books again and closed the door, then groped her way to a steep staircase, a weary sigh escaping as if in spite of herself. The room which she entered, silent and dark at her coming, showed itself, when she had lighted a lamp, a low but spacious living room, stiffly and even meagerly furnished. Opening beyond it was a smaller bedroom. Having laid aside shawl and bonnet, Anna made preparation for a simple evening meal for two persons. Not until these were made did she stop to realize that she was chilled and that her shoes were wet through. Characteristically, it was of the shoes she took cognizance, rather than of her feet, circumstances having thus far led her to regard health as an easier thing to acquire than food and raiment. There was a sudden outburst now, from below, of merry voices, both a man's voice and a girl's, in loud and cheerful banter. Then the house door shut with a bang. There was a quick step on the stairs, and a gay, fluttering, wind-blown figure of a pretty girl appeared in the upper sitting-room. It was Mally Loveland, Anna's early heron friend and companion. "'Hola, Anna!' she called lightly. "'Lucky for me you got in first. A fire is a good thing, I tell you, on a night like this. Mally's voice had acquired a new ring of self-confident vivacity. You're a little late, Mally, remarked Anna quietly as she returned to the room. 
Shall I make tea? Oh, yes, do. There's a dear. Oh, such fun as we've been having at the Allens's. But I'm so chilly and damp, you know. And just look, Anna, at the ribbons on my hat. Mally held up to view a pretentious structure of ribbon and velvet, which had plainly suffered many things of the elements. Too bad. I hope you won't go out again tonight. Your cold was so bad yesterday. It is a wretched night. Oh, I must go out, my dear. Must indeed. Couldn't disappoint the girls, you know. Nor even the boys, asked Anna, smiling. Mally laughed at this, evidently pleased. In a few moments, she was ready, and they took their places at the tea table, Mally quieting herself with an effort in order to ask a brief blessing upon the meal. It was her turn tonight. The two cooperated in their religious exercises of a general character, as well as in their housekeeping. Destiny, so eagerly challenged by these two village girls in the eventless isolation of their life in Heron, seemed at last to have declared itself decisively. Both were to catch men. Anna, in the apostolic sense, Mally, in a different one. Anna's journey to Boston, three months earlier, had been successful. She had returned under appointment as a missionary to India, but being still too young to go out, the board had advised her to spend the following two years in studies especially designed to develop her usefulness in work among the heathen. In January, Samuel Mallison had died. The parsonage, where the children had been born and nurtured, could thus no longer be their home. It must be made ready now for a successor. It had been a sorrowful breaking up, and when the melancholy work was done and the home effaced forever, the mother, patient and uncomplaining, departed with Lucia to the lonely farmhouse among the hills to take on again, in her later years of life, the many cares of tending little children. It was then that Anna, accompanied by her friend Mally, had come to Burlington with the purpose of studying at a collegiate institute, which offered opportunity for a more advanced study that could be had in Heron. Anna was hard at work every morning on Paley's Evidences and Butler's Analogy, while her afternoons were spent in the small hospital of the town, in an informal nurse's class, as it was even then considered a useful thing for missionaries to go out with some equipment for healing the bodies of men as well as their souls. Mally, by her own account, was taking music, painting, and French. As they sat at their little table now, with its meager and humble fare, but its indefinable expression of refinement, Anna and Mally were in striking contrast. It has been said before that Anna matured slowly. There was still in her face, despite its sadness, the grave wonder, the artless simplicity, and the sweet unconsciousness of a child. Her figure was angular and undeveloped. Her black dress, absolutely harshly plain and of coarse stuff. Her face, far too thin and colorless for beauty. She was, plainly, underfed and overworked. But there was, nevertheless, a dignity and distinction in her aspect which emphasized Mally's provincialness, notwithstanding the little fashionable touches about dress and coiffure which the latter had swiftly and instinctively adapted to her own use. 
Anna had the repose of a person who is not concerned at all as to the impression she makes, or desirous of making any personal impression whatever. Mally had the restlessness, the vivacity, the eagerness of a woman who wishes everywhere and at every time to make herself felt, to be the central figure. She was born an egotist, and even divine grace, in the devotional phraseology of that time, had not been sufficient to overcome her natural bent. At the present time, in fact, egotism was having comparatively easy work with her, and an indefinite truce with the religious conflicts of earlier days had tactically declared. That spiritual experience, having been sincere, and it had lasted several years. Fortunately, to Mally's unspoken thought, she had been favored during those years to work out her salvation, which was now, according to a prime doctrine of the church, secure to her against all accidents. This being so, no one need be concerned for her, and if she were herself satisfied with a low spiritual attainment, it was nobody's business but her own. She had, to her own naive surprise, met with a marked degree of social success in a certain middle-class stratum of the small town. She was pretty, clever, adaptive. The young men and women of her set said she was such good company. This was high praise. In Heron, the natural order for a marriageable girl was to be soberly and decorously and protractically wooed by one young man, to whom, in process of time, she was married. Here, Mally found a far more stimulating social condition. Not one man, but many, might be the portion of a popular girl, and Mally found the strength of numbers very great. The sex instinct, the ruling desire to attract men, sprang into vigorous action and became, for a time at least, predominant. Women of whom this is true are often very good women, with energy and common sense, but it is important for their friends, for various reasons, to hold the master key to their character. Anna Mallison, at this period of her life as sexless in her conscious life as a star, looked on at this rapid and unlooked-for development of Mally's nature in infinite perplexity. She had always liked certain men, even outside her own kindred, but it was because they were wise or good or sincere, not because they were men. A thirst for admiration being thus far undeclared in her own life, Mally became inexplicable to her. She did not hold the key to her character, and, involuntarily, she withdrew more and more into herself, her only friend becoming thus uncomprehended. If she felt this in any degree, Mally, being closely occupied with more tangible consideration, paid small heed to it. While they were taking tea, Anna kept her eyes fixed on the mantel clock and, having eaten hastily, rose from her place. "'What is the matter?' asked Mally, looking up. "'Oh, of course. But, dear me, Anna, I never would bother to get things ready for old Marm Wilson after the way she grumbles at you. Sit down, do. You'll never get any thanks, I can tell you that. And what's the use?' Anna was at the door already. I think it's late enough now to be safe. She only grumbles, you know, if the oil and wood burn out a while before she gets here. She was to work quite near on Hill Street today, so she will surely be in early. Oh, well, 
Go on if you've a mind to. I suppose it is forlorn on a night like this for the poor old creature to find her house all dark and cold. Mally spoke carelessly, half to herself. Anna was already halfway downstairs. Mrs. Wilson was their house owner, a seamstress of narrow means and narrow life, whose upper rooms they rented. An hour later, the upper sitting room was suddenly enlivened and almost filled, as far as seating capacity was concerned, by a group of Mally's friends who had come to escort her to an evening gathering. These young men and maidens, whom Anna had scarcely seen before, seemed to explain the new Mally to her and to place her at a different angle, as one of a class, not one by herself. The girls all wore a profusion of ribbons and curls, and were all in an effervescence of noisy excitement regarding the effect of the dampness on their hair and their finery. They whispered and giggled together and pouted at the young men, or tossed their hairs and assumed exaggerated airs of being shocked at the personal remarks which these attendants volunteered, and with which they were, in fact, palpably delighted. Anna, who attempted some quiet civilities from time to time, was regarded with undisguised indifference as not being one of the set. After the young people had left the house, however, Mally's companion on their expedition, a young man somewhat above the others in intelligence, said to her, "'What an unusual girl that friend of yours, that Miss Mallison is!' I never met any one just like her. She strikes me as a girl who would keep a fellow at a mighty distance. But, if she ever did care for him, he wouldn't mind dying for her, you know, and all that sort of thing. But she isn't one of the kind you like to play games with. End of chapter 7